Hi, everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you are listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. I am the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book, and a co-author of Complete Illustrated Birthing Companion, and I wrote Fit Pregnancies Ask the Labor Nurse column for about eight years. So why am I repeating my resume to you, you may ask? Well, because all of this podcasting and writing and labor nursing and birthing and raising my own children has kept me anchored in the birth community for virtually my entire life, certainly my entire career, from way back when I started out in the 70s as a medical assistant, through the 80s when I went to nursing school and began my career as a nurse, and through the 90s and 2000s when I worked besides you know, bedside for literally thousands of births to where I am now, writing, talking, and working in the Global Maternal and Women's Health Forum. And there is just so much to talk about. And our guest today is going to shine a light on something that I have seen over all of these oh so many years and far too many women experience, which is birth trauma. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. But first... What's going on out there in the world? Well, we're still in the middle of a healthcare crisis that's generated by Capitol Hill. Will we or won't we have health insurance if their repeal and replace plans go into play? I'm lucky. I am really lucky. I am ridiculously grateful that at the moment, um, my family gets our health insurance through my husband's work, but it hasn't always been this way. Um, There was a time when we had to pay for it ourselves. You know, the economy was bad. Many employers weren't providing health insurance for their staff anymore. And that included us and my family. And because of my pre-existing conditions, um, read the book. I had breast cancer right after my youngest was born. Um, It put us in a condition where... um, You know, it's even still hard for me to talk about. It was so rough. But, you know, we didn't have health insurance through our work anymore. and We had to buy it ourselves. And because of my pre-existing conditions, um, it was ridiculously expensive. And it was beyond difficult. We were really, really fortunate that um, eventually we were able to get health insurance through work again. But if we lose that link in the future again, you know, the economy takes a shift or you never know what's going to happen. If we have to buy insurance again on the private market like we used to, it's almost certain we won't be able to afford it. You know, that's my husband won't. I won't. We, because of our age and our pre-existing conditions, my son won't. Nope. None of my daughters will. They're women. And, you know, each one of them have been to a doctor in their lives for certain things. And they may or may not be disqualified from affordable health insurance. I'm not going to go on much of a rant on this, except to say that I truly believe that healthcare should be a right for every human on the planet, not a lottery ticket, not for somebody who can um, afford it, not for people who, you know, live up on Capitol Hill and make those decisions. It's not supposed to be just for them and for the fortunate few. It should be a right. People like me and my family shouldn't have to worry about what might happen to our health care access should we lose our insurance. We just shouldn't. 
What the hell is Congress thinking? Okay, enough of that. I promise no rant, enough of that. Let's get to our guest. But before we do that, I want to give you a little heads up. I am heading out of town and off the grid next week to go get some sun, do some camping, go to a music festival, go get my dance on. It is time to recharge the batteries. So no new episode next week. Instead, we're going to revisit a conversation that I just loved. And it really, really seems to be resonating with listeners. It's episode 73, and we recorded it um, last spring, talking about insomnia, anxiety, pregnancy, and parenting, and what the hell to do about it. We'll have a new episode the following week. But for now, let's get our guest on the phone. Hello, this is Becca. Hi, Becca. This is Jeannie. I'm here in Portland. Are you in London? I am in sunny London. Yeah. Oh, sunny London. Great. <laughs> yeah. So glad to hear it. It's sunny here in Portland, too. And I think that we have very similar weather patterns. People tell me that England and Oregon were the same. Yes, I think so, which is why we have to mention the sun, because... It's not I know. given. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I talk about it far too often on my podcast. I'm sure people are either looking forward to my weather report, which, by the way, it's freaking gorgeous here in Portland right now, or they're saying, oh, dear God, please let that woman stop talking about the gray drizzle. <laughs> well, Becca, let me um, just explain your job a little bit, and then let's get talking, shall we? Yeah, absolutely. So... Cool. I am a perinatal psychiatrist um, working in East London. So I work in the NHS and I work in the community with women through their pregnancy from any stage of pregnancy up to a year postnatally. And that's with any kind of pre-existing mental health diagnosis or new onset illness of any kind. So that's a huge range of things, anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, bipolar, trauma, um, a huge range of presentations. And the way we work is really to support women to feel as well as possible through that transition to becoming a mum. So some of our listeners are not familiar with the NHS. And let me let me try to explain it. It's the national health system. It's like the insurance system that provides health care for everybody in the UK, is that correct? Yeah, so the National Health Service has been in place since the 1950s and it's an absolutely amazing institution. So the basic premise is is that healthcare is free at the point of access. So it means that wherever you live in the United Kingdom, you can walk into your local hospital and receive treatment for whatever type of condition you're presenting with. Including mental health care? including mental health care. So we don't pay anything for our health care provision. Obviously, we're paying some through our taxation system. But in, you know, certainly compared to the American system, you can receive an absolutely amazing bespoke treatment program um, through your for your for your mental health through your pregnancy, and you're not paying a penny. You really can't here. You really can't. I mean, there are certainly some women who have really high quality health insurance and, you know, are fortunate to live in a city that has 
you know, a variety of healthcare providers, including mental health, but that is really not the case in most parts mm-hmm. of the country. And and even if, you know, we're we're going through this um uh this big healthcare crisis here where Congress is determining whether or not they're going to replace and repeal what's called Obamacare, yeah. which is a healthcare system that frankly works real well for me and my family. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, it's just a crazy time here. And the, the list of things that they would not cover and pay for um, includes mental health care, which is just, it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the NHS is not perfect by any means, but, you know, if, if I compare it to the, to the U.S. system, you know, there is mental health provision through in every area. So... It will vary from area to area, but somebody with a mental health um, issue will be able to access mental health services throughout the whole of the United Kingdom. As they should be. And in some, you know, in some areas, the service will be utterly outstanding in terms of what is offered. Um, So it, and there's been a huge drive in the United Kingdom to raise mental health to have equal parity to physical health. Yeah, which is completely right because you right. you can't have one without the other. You can't ignore one. They you know they're intertwined. So there's been a huge drive in in recent years to think about mental health services should be as accessible and as high quality as any physical health service that you would access. Yeah. So although there, it has its faults, in in reality, the the service that most people get via the NHS is very very good. Well, we kind of started with your job title and ran with it. I generally like to ask my 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 guests right at the start, once we've talked about your job title, the big question, which is, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> That's such a big, big question, isn't it? I know. I know. I know. <laughs> I am a passionate a uh, supporter of women's mental health. So I've been in this field for a long time, over 20 years, and I'm really passionate about women receiving high-quality, bespoke care that is centred on and led by them through their pregnancy to support their mental health. Mm-hmm. That's, that's me professionally, in a mm-hmm. nutshell. Mm-hmm. I think beyond work I'm lots of things um you know I'm a mum and I think that really informs my practice because Mm -hmm. I've been through birth and pregnancy and motherhood myself Mm -hmm. and I think that has really informed how I work um and I think that continues to inform how I work really it does doesn't it once you're a mom yeah absolutely it changes the way that you look at everything the way that you approach everything. It's all different. Yeah, totally different. I mean, I na- naively thought that because I worked in this field, you know, I really understood what it w- was to be a mum. And yeah. boy, did I not understand <laughs> it until I went through it myself. You know, I boy, thought, I was right there with you. I thought, oh, you know, I, I've seen loads of women and I, I'll really be okay and I'll understand how yeah. it and I was so, so wrong. <laughs> oh, me too. Me too. I had no idea. I really did, though. Like you, you know, I was a 
medical professional. I had seen lots of babies born. I knew what this was all about. Clearly, I knew best, actually. (laughs) And that is until I had my own baby. And then, of course, I knew nothing. Yeah, Yeah, totally, totally. And and also, I I thought, oh, gosh, I probably look back and cringe at some of the advice I gave because, you know, it was given with the best intention, but Uh probably very naive in that I hadn't been through that experience myself. Isn't it amazing how rigid our advice can be when we don't know what we're talking about? (laughs) Yeah, and I think, you know, you do it with good intentions. Sure. And you think you're you know, you're doing the right thing. But actually, until mm-hmm. you walk that journey yourself, mm-hmm. you, you probably shouldn't be handing out advice. <laughs> like maybe that, not. Certainly. Yeah. Or maybe your advice should come with a caveat, you know. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> yeah. To study that I saw pre, pre-babies because I would definitely give much more, hopefully, realistic advice now. Probably, yeah. <laughs> so you, you say that, you have a special passion and expertise in reducing birth trauma. And I'm wondering, you know, where did this come from? Yeah. So over the last um, probably five years, I just became aware of how many women were talking to me about their birth experience being traumatic. Mm -hmm. And it's probably something that I hadn't focused on much before or known much about before and I just was hearing all these stories week in week out of how difficult women were finding their birth experience Mm -hmm. and it really prompted me to try to understand that and learn more about that Um, it wasn't something that you know I wanted to be hearing at all but I was just hearing week in, week out, these, these terrible stories from women. And I suppose that came from the fact that, you know, these were women that I'd perhaps known from the second week of their pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So I really knew them. And, you know, we'd had lots of discussions and we really have the luxury of time. So I will often have up to an hour um, with a woman for an appointment. So I really have the luxury of, of being able to hear and listen to their stories. And... You know, you ask women usually, how was your birth? And they say, okay. And then you say, well, how was your birth really? And then it all spills out. And and just these sort of recurrent themes of women feeling traumatized at birth. Mm -hmm. And that really prompted me to think about why is this happening? And what can I do to try to reduce that level of distress for women? Because I think particularly here in the United Kingdom, and I think probably in the United States as well, birth trauma was not really well recognized or understood Mm. and often I would see women that had been diagnosed as having depression or anxiety Mm -hmm. and actually they had neither of those things and what was really distressing them was was their birth experience and they were feeling very traumatized by that right and I think there's there's so many uh, myths and misconceptions about birth trauma you know, so birth trauma is a subjective experience of birth. So it it doesn't mean that you've had a medically difficult or dangerous birth. Mm -hmm. It means that there's been something subjective about that experience that's been overwhelming and frightening and fearful. So often it's not about the mechanics of birth at all. It's about the way women feel they're treated or listened to or heard during labor 
it's often about communication and language rather than medical emergencies. It can be a medical emergency that causes the trauma, but invariably I find it's not. It's, it's about women being in a very vulnerable position, perhaps being a first-time mother, not really understanding what's happening, mm-hmm. and being very out of control, and people perhaps say talking about them, not to them, talking over them, not involving them in choices and communications. And that can be the trauma. It can be unbelievably distressing. We see a lot of it here in the United States, Mm -hmm. too, especially over the last five to 10 years, I'd say, primarily because um, we have such a high C-section rate here. And so many women um, report What women talk to me about in their birth trauma is either feeling like they were um, disregarded, not respected, not listened to, and then pushed into this cascade of interventions they didn't want, but they just felt like they didn't have any power to stop it. And it ended up with a C-section or a traumatic birth that they didn't want. And that's one thing that they, people, women talk to me about in terms of trauma. But the other thing I hear an awful lot about is... Um, women feel they, they come through their birth and it was so much more difficult than they had fathomed. Mm -hmm. And they feel this kind of double-edged sword between feeling really roughed up by how hard their labor was, feeling like there's something wrong with them because it was that hard. They didn't have this, you know, twinkly zen birth that they had anticipated but then just also just feeling like the whole experience they got bullied into it and it was too hard yeah yeah am i describing it yeah i think that's a really great description i think there's two slightly different strands there aren't there so there are absolutely agree that you know i huge proportion of women where it's about that sort of lack of control and feeling coerced right uh, um and feeling that they perhaps lose their voice um, yeah. and and I think that's really difficult for women so I work with a lot of women who will say I'm normally so vocal I'm so used to being able to speak my mind but I felt that I got trapped within that scenario and lost my voice Right, and they find that unbelievably distressing, and then it that cascade of events that just occurs without them feeling they're part of it. But some of a big, big, big part of giving birth is losing control. Literally, you yeah. do have to just let go in order for that baby to come out. And you know, there's that conflict, that internal conflict of that actually does have to happen, and yet. There are so many things about a labor experience that you feel like you want to control. Yeah, and I think that's where the work needs to happen antenatally to mm-hmm. prepare women better for mm-hmm. birth. And of mm-hmm. course, in some ways, you can't prepare for birth because you can't no. predict it, you don't know what's going to happen. But right. I think that what's really lacking, I think, in our system, which is midwifery-led, which is great, yeah. is that the pressures on the service are that women often lack continuity of care. And that comes out time and time again as something that really helps reduce traumatic birth. And that's because you might change shifts in the middle of your 
labor and so you'll have worked with one midwife for a good chunk of your day and then all of a sudden it's her time for her to go home and you get a new midwife who might not know you as well may not know the you know how things have been going you've never met Um, but also antenatally you know at your antenatal appointments you might see a different midwife each time you might see them for 10 or 15 minutes right and all the focus is on everything they have to get done of course So, you know, it's very physically orientated, checks, blood tests, screening. Mm-hmm. And then in the NHS, they will typically have one discussion about the birth plan. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it. And I think what needs to happen is that women and their partners need to think much more realistically about birth. Mm-hmm. You know, think about, OK, think about what you might like to happen but how will you cope if that can't happen or if something changes or if something goes wrong? And I think if we had thought more about that antenatally, it would be far less traumatic in labour when some of those things happened. But I also think in labour, actually all it would take sometimes to reduce some of that trauma is somebody calmly and quietly explaining what's happening and why it's happening and involving right. mum because right. the very few scenarios in labor that are so life and death that they need to happen in a minute i know and yet that's a that's a myth that is a hard one to bust so many people yeah. um will say oh i had <clears throat> this big emergency c section and then when you find out what actually was happening was yeah that wasn't an emergency but it's also about you know involving the woman still you know I I, even if somebody's being prepped for a c-section there is plenty of time to be talking to them and explaining to them you know this is why this is happening you know how are you feeling you know is there anything that you would like to happen in theater you know there are still a myriad of ways that you can make that experience feel to the woman like she has choice and control yeah even with you you know even within that setting even if you're running down a corridor to theater with somebody Mm -hmm. you can still be talking to them as you're running and saying i know this seems really scary right now this is why it's happening and i just don't think that happens and so women just feel totally ignored and and disconnected from the experience It surprises me how often that doesn't happen because Mm -hmm. I know that the team of labor nurses that I worked with in every facility did their absolute best to be their patient's number one ally and advocate. And they, I've seen a change in the job over the last several decades where it is less patient care focused and more computer care focused because there's so much documentation, maybe especially here in the United States where everything has to be documented in certain ways for insurance purposes. Um, So, you know, a big, a big part of the job of the labor nurse is to, um, you know, click away on the computer. It's a big job and it has to be done and it gets a bigger weight in priority sometimes than patient care. 
I think that's true here also to a certain degree. There are so many forms to be filled in and completed and yeah. checklists. And I think sometimes people get so fixated with having to do that that it is almost irritating when a woman in, intervenes and wants something from you because there's a pressure to get the paperwork completed. And, and here in, in the United States, there's huge pressure on nurses and midwives and doctors to do real-time documentation of yeah. labor, which yeah. means that while you're checking fetal heart tones or mm -hmm. helping a woman with her contraction, you're also supposed to have your eyes and hands on the computer, real-time documentation. Yeah. So, you know, that used to be that we could do our patient care and then go spend 15 minutes at the computer and document that. Mm -mm -mm, not anymore. Not yeah. anymore. So yeah, it's we don't have that here, thankfully. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds awful. It sounds impossible to. Well, to I think that. that nurses adapt, and I know that you know this was happening when I was a, working mm. at the bedside too, and you learn how to provide care differently, and yeah. you learn to explain to your patient that hey, I'm not turning my back on you intentionally. Yeah. This is part of my job too, and you just you change your shtick. And do it differently. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. think my worry is is with all, is that what it leads to over time, alongside the team being unbelievably busy and traumatized themselves in a way through everything that they're seeing without space to process it. Right. It's just a gradual erosion of kindness and compassion and basic care. And I really worry about that. And I think that's what women talk to me time and time again about is just feeling that the care was okay, but just not kind or compassionate. Yeah. And there's been a lot of really good research that's shown that in terms of the care provision during labor, that sort of neutral care that's just about okay, mm -hmm. is actually as harmful and as traumatizing as overtly negative and hostile care. That and makes I, sense to me because yeah, it, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. it's such a vulnerable time. You are so vulnerable when you're becoming a mother and giving birth and going through labor. And you need somebody there who is going to see you and know you and be able to, you know, make that personal connection. Yeah. And just, and you know, a tiny bit of kindness will go a long, long way. So far. And so I and I talk to my students about it all the time, you know, do not be fearful to be human with people and touch them, hold their hand, you know, yeah. support yeah. them. Not everybody will like that. And you will learn over time who wants that and who doesn't. But a tiny gesture like that to a woman can make them feel so supported. Yeah. And, and in reality, it takes five seconds and it costs nothing. But yeah. to the woman, it's just unbelievably helpful at that time. To all the labor nurses out there who are saying, yeah, but you know what? Sometimes instead of having one-to-one -one patient care, what I have is three-to-one. And I have three patients in labor. Or I have all of this stuff going on. And I don't have the time to provide that one-to-one -one care all the time. And that is actually probably true. But what you can do is you can say to your patient, things are going crazy on the unit right now, but you are really important to me. 
What can I do for you right now? And, you know, just do that every now and again. It's quality, not quantity. It is. And you can give your your patient permission to say, you know, if you say to me, I need you right now, I will be there. Absolutely. Give your patient permission. It's language as well, you know, so things like saying, I'm your nurse for today. So yep. it should be the onus of, you know, you're the one leading the care. Right. You're, you're the most important thing. And, you know, how long does it take to explain, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry, it's really busy today. I'm looking after, you know, two other women. But if you need me at all, don't hesitate. You know, right. I'm here for you. Right. And invite the, the partner or um, yeah. husband into that conversation and say, I need you to do this for me. If I seem distracted and you're, I'm not giving her what she needs, please tell me. Yeah, I think there needs to be a much greater involvement of dads and partners because they, you know, we increasingly know that they're often getting traumatized as well. Yeah. They often feel very lost in the space and the room. Yeah. So, go ahead. Go ahead. (laughs) I think, you know, just, uh, you know, going back to the antenatal discussions about birth as well, I think if partners were involved a lot more in that discussion then it would allow them to be a voice in labor if the woman temporarily feels unable to speak because she's laboring, she's in pain. You know, it gives them uh, permission to, to use their voice as well to improve the experience. I like that you focus on midwives and doctors and, and nurses and their trauma as well because, yeah. um, you know, that is the, the experience of birth comes from a point of relationship and community. It's a temporary little community that you only get on your birthday. Mm-hmm. It's your nurses, your midwives, your doctor, whoever else is providing ancillary support. You got this little team, this tiny community who is there during this moment. Some of the people in your community might be feeling pretty rough too. We do our very best as professionals to keep it out of the birth room, but you know, we do bring ourselves and our experiences and our history with us to your birth as well. Yeah, of course. And, you know, I do not in any way want to ever demonize any member of, of the team. And I have the utmost respect for, for people working in the NHS on labor wards because they are tough places to work. They work incredibly hard for yeah. not, not a huge amount of money. They work long shifts. And the stakes are really high. Yeah, and and it's a yeah. you know it's a risky place to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I and I really worry that we don't look after and prioritize the health of the team enough. So what I mean by that is, I think that they're so busy, um, and it's relentless, and they're herring from one case to the next, and. You know, in any one day, they might be seeing somebody who's had a huge bleed. They might have a stillbirth. They, you know, they're exposed to these things day in, day out. Mm-hmm. And I think they have very little time themselves to just stop and pause and reflect um, and have a space to talk through anything that might be on their mind and, and troubling them. Right. And what we do, you know, locally, which has just been amazing, is... We have a dedicated, reflective space. Um, 
with a, a psychologist there and it's a session that anyone can drop into it's got a set time it happens every week and whoever's around on the team can drop in and out of it as they wish and over time it's just become a really amazing powerful space where people can offload sometimes people might cry and we all end up crying mm-hmm. um, but it really reinforces that sense of the team being valued and cared for and supported because you can't give emotionally if if you've got nothing left if nobody's supporting you and I think it's really helped the team to thrive because they feel like women in labor listened to heard mm-hmm. valued respected um, and you know, initially, there was, I think there was some reluctance about it and some people were a bit sceptical about it. But it's become the most amazing forum. And it's really helped, in particular, I think, different groups of professions, say perhaps midwives and doctors, perhaps who sometimes historically haven't necessarily understood each other's roles at times, them to really connect. Um, and it's it's led to a really healthy team, and that in turn has led to much better care for women. So you're so writing a, a book about, about this, right? I am. I am. I am writing a book about birth trauma as we speak, mm-hmm. um, which is really been exciting to do. So I've been very very lucky to have the generosity of a group of women that have offered to tell me their birth stories. So it's focusing on different themes of birth trauma. Each story has a different theme. So say that lack of control or not being listened to. Um, And then it's very much about providing uh, lots of information about treatment choices because there are a huge amount of choices and options for birth trauma. There's no one right treatment. And it's just about getting information out there, like understanding that birth trauma is real, that it exists, that it needs to be validated with women and offering them sources of support in the community where they can access help. Yeah, good. That's a book that needs to be out there. Yeah, Yeah, I think so. There are some excellent books out there already. Um, but probably not so much British-based. So there's a beautiful book um, written by um, uh, in Australia called How to Heal a Bad Birth, which is beautiful. But I don't think there's been anything specifically looking at women living in the United Kingdom. But it won't it won't just be applicable to women in the United Kingdom because a lot of the different um, treatment resources can be accessed wherever you live. So, you know, thinking about things like diet and exercise, for example, that can be accessed wherever you live. Mm-hmm. Well, it is a universal experience. You yeah. know, I, I'm really fortunate to um, work in the global maternal health field as well as the United States birth world. And the things that we're talking about right here, right now, are the same things that women in Nigeria and Afghanistan and Nepal are talking about. Mm. The need to be heard, to be able to direct their own births to the best of their ability, to be supported. You know, the simplest things, the simplest things. Everybody's talking about the same thing. And it really comes down to how we 
it comes down to gender equity issues. It comes down to how we value women and their roles in society. It comes down to all of that. And ultimately, it comes down to being kind and compassionate and treating people as equal human beings on the planet. Yeah, I agree totally. It's really about respecting women and their experience and their choices. And absolutely, I hear the same themes from from women from all over the world. So where I work in East London is a, is a very, very diverse community. Mm-hmm. Um, 50% of the women that I work with are Bangladeshi in mm-hmm. origin. Um, and I have women from all over the world that are living in London. And it doesn't matter. It's, there, it's the universal themes are the same, regardless yeah. of someone's cultural background. Yep, it's the same, no matter where you're given birth. Well, Becca, you and I have been talking for quite some time now, and I do have a couple more questions before I let you off the hook. You ready? I'm ready. How would you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. Wow. Gosh, so many things that I could answer that. Go for it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well... Gosh, I'm actually almost speechless as to what to say, which is a rare occurrence. I'm thinking of some things that are probably too rude to say, so I shouldn't say Oh, no, say it, say it. (laughs) No, no, no. Um, Oh, okay. (laughs) Nobody ever told me that. Nobody ever told me how hard motherhood can be. Mm. having a baby I heard lots of stories positive stories which were great but I think nobody ever told me truthfully pre giving birth about what it meant to give birth and I think that's probably something that's really spurred me on professionally is about to have more realistic discussions about birth and to support women through that process because I think you know that's where my interest in trauma has sprung from is being real about birth not frightening women um but being more real about birth and motherhood i wish that somebody had told me about that do you suppose you would have really really gotten it if they had told you or is this the kind of thing that you can hear about it you can prepare for it but there's no way to know until you have i think partially that bridge yeah, I think partially you can't understand till you've done it yourself. Right. But I, I think I wish that people had been a bit more real about things with me, and I think that would have helped me. So I think, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that I necessarily had a traumatic birth myself, mm-hmm. but I definitely had a challenging birth with my first child. It was very long. It was... I didn't have great communication from the team. It ended up being quite medical towards the end. And and I was certainly traumatised to a degree afterwards. I was quite anxious for a while. Um, And I wish, I think that if people had explained to me a bit more about what might happen, rather than sort of me expecting that it would all be this wonderful plan that would, you know, go exactly as hoped for it right. would it would have helped to a certain degree 
And that's even with me working, you know, being a doctor, seeing lots of births. I still think that we don't have that sort of carefully nuanced discussion about birth. Mm-hmm. We talk about, you know, what do you want or what do you don't want, but we don't talk about the sort of grey area. Yeah. And I think we could do a lot more to talk about that in a meaningful way. I think so too, because, you know, it's, I encourage people to go into their births with um, birth plans, but it's not a contract. It's not a commitment. It's not a rigid way that things have to go because, you know, from the very start, parenthood, pregnancy, labor, all of it is about flexibility. And I think that people really need to know what to do in the gray area, where they have to be flexible, where, you know, coping skills. It's the gray area that's the most frightening. Yeah. Because it's unknown. Right. You've got no map, internal map, for how do I negotiate this? Whilst at the same time, perhaps you're you're, you're tired, you're laboring, you're in pain, and you don't know how to negotiate this. And that's the most terrifying part of it all. So I think if we could have those discussions about the what-ifs and uh, some of the unknowns, that Mm -hmm. that would be so helpful. Yeah, yeah. Well, then my last question for you is this, and you get to answer it any way you want. (laughs) Where are you in your life as a mom? As a mom? Yeah. I'm I'm in such a good place as a mum. I motherhood has been just the most beautiful thing for me. It has brought me so much joy. I have two gorgeous children and they are ten and nearly eight. Mm. So I'm in that phase where they're a bit more independent. They don't need uh monitoring every second of the day, but they still think I'm quite cool. You're in the sweet spot, honey. Sweet spot. I just, it's just a joy. And I keep telling them, you know, in a couple of years, you won't want to hang out with me and you'll think I'm so uncool. So I am making the absolute most of this time because it is just gorgeous. Are they boys or girls? One of each. Great. And they might want to hang out with you. They, they still, might. well, I really hope so. They, they're quite convinced that they will, and they're outraged that I should suggest otherwise. So I'm hoping that they very much want to hang out with me still. But I think, I'm making the most of it just in case. I think that that is the number one thing that parents project on their children's teenage yeah. years. They project that their children won't like them, that their children won't want to be with them, and that they even set that up a little bit. I think it's really possible for parents to get through the adolescent and teen years, certainly not smoothly, because that's not what that time of life is about. But our kids still want to hang out with us. They still want to, you know, it it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. I had, you know, my, my teenage years with my mom and dad were pretty straightforward. We didn't have any major big difficulties, and I still spent a lot of time with them whilst doing lots of naughty things that they didn't know anything about. Um, right. <laughs> or quite, quite happily. So I, I'm hoping that we can follow the same model. Perfect. Um, I certainly didn't have, you know, any major traumatic teenage years myself. So yeah. I'm hoping that we can follow that model 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, Becca, this has been a lovely conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And I hope that when your book is written and published and um, a bestseller, that you'll come back on the pod and we'll talk about all of this some more. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Thank you so much for having me here. I really enjoyed talking to you. Our guest today was Dr. Rebecca Moore. You can find her over on Twitter at Dr. underscore BJM. Um, And you can learn more about the National Health Service uh, by going online. You can learn more about me, Jean Faulkner, over at my website. Uh, You can tweet me at Jean Faulkner. You can email me, Jeannie at Jean Faulkner. Go pick up the book, will ya? Just about everything you need to know about getting through your pregnancy and parenting and prenatal care in one piece is in there. Um, That's it for this week's folks. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. You guys have a good week. We'll talk again soon.